0: westward to Europe and the world. Ignoring bandits, pagans, beatings, and imprisonment, Paul takes his message to new churches and the Gentiles. Standing like a fortress wall along the south coast of Turkey, the Taurus mountains glower deeper down upon the Mediterranean. Steep, jagged, cut by deep, twisting ravines, through which the waters of winter crash down in torrents, they were a formidable barrier to road builders, travelers, pilgrims, tourists, and invaders. Toward the Great Sea's northeastern coast corner, however, the Tauruses retreat slightly from the coast, creating a Sicilian plain, in the midst of which stands the ancient city known as Tarsus, Turkey's seventeenth or seventieth city in terms of population. Tarsus has known greater days. Probably its greatest came unexpectedly in the spring of AD fifty or thereabouts. The Jew named Paul, destined to become Tarsus's greatest ever son, took the road north toward the ominously shadowed barrier of the Tauruses. About thirty miles ahead of him lay a single crack in the great mountain barrier. From here, the road ran west, a mere trail, barely wide enough for two men to walk abreast, through a series of ha- narrow, hazardous defiles. Nearly two thousand years later, travelers would still call them the Sicilian Gates. The Gates had seen much history, through them in 401 BC the Greek survivors of the battle of Canuxa had fled for home after their leader Cyrus the Younger was slain. Through the tight passage coming the other way was 68 years later, squeezed the mighty forces of Alexander on their way to conquer the known world. Now, through the same pass, the greatest conquest Europe would ever know was about to begin, and the force that would accomplish it was in an army of 2, Paul and beside him, his companion Silas. Silas was a Jerusalem Jew. His name probably derived from the Talmudic name Sheila, and clearly it had the confidence of James, Peter, John, and the Jerusalem church leadership. They had entrusted him and a companion with a vital letter formally exempting Gentile Christians from circumcision. He had delivered it at Antioch, and in the ensuing weeks he had become persuaded it was Christ himself who had commissioned Paul as apostle to the Gentiles thus when others abandoned paul silas did not he offered paul something more his latin name silvanus disclosed him as a roman citizen a distinct advantage in the tumultuous adventures that would follow hence it was a party of two that crossed the tauruses through the the sicilian gates and headed west to the roman provinces of galatia asia macedonia and the world about ten days beyond the gates they reached the town of lystra which would become zostera near patensary on the maps of the future turkey here they added a third member to their party young timothy in greek timotheus whose name was to be associated with paul in six of paul's letters in the new testament two of which would be addressed directly to timothy whom paul would call my true-born son in the faith lystra held some bad memories for paul he had been stoned by a hostile crowd here and given up for dead but he and barnabas had escaped leaving behind a durable Christian community. One member of it was a certain Eunice, a Jewish married to a Gentile. Timothy, their son, was therefore considered Jewish by birth. But since he had never been circumcised, he was, by Jewish law, an apostate, a rebel against his own religion. Timothy was highly recommended to Paul by his fellow believers, but he posed a problem. If Paul acquiesced in Timothy's apostasy, this would make Paul an apostate as well thereby denying him access to any synagogue. Paul soon solved this. He circumcised Timothy, regularizing his status in the Jewish community. All three now moved deeper into the province of Galatia, the locale that held such dread for John Mark that he had abandoned Paul and Barnabas and gone home. But John Mark had good reasons to be nervous. The Galatians had never become enamored with Greek civilization. They were, in fact, the race known as the Celts, who made their first appearance in history in what would be one day the north central germany about four thousand years ago from there they moved west becoming known in the future spain as the Celtiberians, in ireland as the Gaels, in scotland as the picts in england as the britons in france as the gauls and in the low countries as the belgae they struck south too once actually sacking and burning rome though they were soon hurled out they became such a problem to the greeks macedonians and Thracians, that the king of Bithynia made a deal with them. They could have the whole pasture land of Asia Minor, he said, if they would stay there and leave Bithynia and its neighbors to the north alone. They agreed, and in 288 to 287 BC, some twenty thousand of them, men, women, children, and baggage, crossed over from Europe and occupied the great bleak, dry, rolling, treeless plateau that accounts for about twelve thousand square miles in the center of the future Turkey there they became the galatians they kept their promise and did not return to europe but for the next two centuries they made themselves the terror of asia minor supplementing the meager income of their pastoral drought-prone property by robbing pillaging and slaughtering their neighbors or whenever the market was good selling them into slavery the civilized people of the coastal cities loathed and dreaded them to the greeks writes the historian jerome murphy o'connor they were large unpredictable simpletons ferocious and highly dangerous when angry but without stamina and easy to trick they went into battle naked and drank too much however they were also honest truthful oddly generous to visitors they invite strangers to their feasts writes diodorus siculus and do not inquire until after the meal who they are and what they are in need of it is their custom even during the course of the meal to seize upon any trivial matter as an occasion for keen disputation, and then to challenge one another to single combat without any regard for their lives. They are also boasters and threateners, and are fond of pompous language, and have yet sharp wits, and and not without cleverness at learning. Among them are found lyrics, poets, and whom they call bards. In in 88 BC, a neighboring king summoned sixty of their leading men to a great banquet where he massacred them all. The Romans helped them avenge this reversal. That made them permanent and dependable allies of Rome, and by Paul's time, Galatia was a Roman province. However disgusting to the Greeks, to Paul they were merely one more variety of Gentile human souls whom Christ had died for. He and Barnabas had founded churches in at least four Galatian centers. When he returned to visit them, Paul did not like what he found. He discovered, as he had no doubt already heard, that he was not conducting the only mission to Gentiles. Others, probably out of Antioch, but claiming authority from Jerusalem, had actually reached the Galatian churches, spent considerable time with them, and largely persuaded them that he, he, Paul, was a compromiser and a fraud. The law, they argued, had been given to Abraham, and Jesus had now made it possible for all the peoples of the world to come under the law. But like the Jews, all must submit themselves to the law's commands, and among other things, be circumcised otherwise in no sense could they be followers of christ the implications of such thinking had long been clear to paul for one thing circumcision made no sense to the gentiles the spiritual point of it was entirely lost on them and many saw it as a weird eastern form of self-mutilation like castration something the egyptians were given to worse still the effect would be to render christianity as simply another sect of judaism worst of all if faith in Christ were reduced to mere adherence to a number of moral, social, and dietary rules, the liberation from the law that Jesus had come to bring, the freedom it was Paul's responsibility to preach, would be utterly lost. The law, impossible by itself as a means of salvation, could be, pu- could be fulfilled because one could now live in Christ and through him in the very life of God. What mattered now, therefore, was the relationship of the individual to Jesus Christ. This was a war, in other words, a war that he must not lose. How Paul replied on the spot to the Galatians, history does not record. How he replied to them in a subsequent letter was to become one of the books of the New Testament. The epistle to the Galatians, addressed to wayward congregations in the lonely grasslands of Central Asia Minor, will be read in homes and churches all around the world for centuries to come. Paul knew the disputatious Galatians. To pick a fight with them, he realized, would accomplish nothing. He addressed them as, Oh, you dear idiots of Galatia. And the tone is more affectionate than customary, than, accusi- than accusatory. He goes on to strike two notes. Heartbreak that they had led astray and reasoned argument to lead them back. He is amazed, he says, that they have actually embraced another gospel because there really is no such thing. Peter, James, and John, the pillars of the church in Jerusalem, had all agreed that Gentiles need not come under the law. Titus An uncircumcised Gentile had actually been at the conference and no one had proposed that he be circumcised so why now the Gentiles of Galatia but beyond that did they not realize that salvation cannot be won by obeying a system of regulations what matters is not the law but faith in Jesus Christ Abraham they might recall had two sons one by a slave and one by a free woman whose those who descended from the slave were under the law and therefore remain, spiritually speaking, slaves of the law. Yet they, the Christians of Galatia, had come to God through the faith in Jesus Christ. So then, my brothers, we are not to look upon ourselves as sons of the slave woman, but of the free, not sons of slavery under the law, but sons of freedom under grace. But this did not mean, Paul warned, that they could abuse their freedom by yielding to their lower nature, by indulging in sexual immorality, impurity of mind, sensuality, worship of false gods, witchcraft, hatred, strife, jealousy, bad temper, rivalry, factions, party spirit, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Rather, they should see them within themselves the product of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, fidelity, tolerance, and self-control. Whether the Galatian response was to return Paul's gospel is not known. He would visit them again in subsequent missionary journey to strengthen them, that would be about four years later and perhaps after that occasion that he wrote his letter to them in the meantime the next step was determined by a dream in which he saw a macedonian man beckoning him to come and help us that seemed clear enough the trio had already moved more than five hundred miles by the roman roads to the port of treos near the northern, northwestern corner of asia minor jump off point for the macedonian ports on the north coast of the aegeans in Troas, they had been joined by a fourth, a man who would become Paul's companion and the narrator of his struggles, a man whose polished Greek, eye for detail, and knack for storytelling would enable him to write approximately one quarter of the New Testament. His name was Luke. The voyage, taken in response to Paul's dream, went well. They made the 120 mile crossing to Macedonia in less than two days. The same trip in the reverse direction, some eight years later, would take them more than a week. This put them in Neapolis, modern Kavala, port city of the Macedonian center of Philippi. It lay just fifteen miles ahead along one of the best roads of the empire, the Via Ignatia, a masterpiece of construction by the Roman army that snaked across the mountains of Macedonia to connect the Adriatic and Aegean. Philippi's claim to historical renown was fairly recent. Though it was founded four centuries earlier by Philip of Macedonia, father of Alexander the Great, as a town atop a hill, It was best known throughout the empire as the place where an army under Brutus and Cassius, two of Julius Caesar's assassins, was trounced in 42 by sea by Caesar's avengers, Mark Antony and Octavius, later known as Augustus. Eleven years after the Battle of Philippi, Octavius defeated his erstwhile partner Antony and transferred Antony's defeated veterans out of Italy and into Macedonia, a safe distance from Rome. They settled alongside the veterans of the Brutus Cassius Force, who had already been planted in the place. Thus, those ex-legionnaires and one-time enemies formed a Latin-speaking island in a sea of Greek. By now, the city had sprawled down the hillside, encroaching upon the marshland that lay between it and the sea, but looking out also on the fertile and beautiful farmlands to the west." The unique letter from James. Could this be the earliest book of the New Testament? Most historians agree that the first written book in the New Testament was Paul's epistle to the Thessalonians, but not all. Some believe that the right letter written by James, the brother of the Lord, could very well be the earliest book, and in fact may have been written within a dozen years of Jesus' death. Certainly James' letter is unique in several respects. It is the least doctrinal of any of the letters in the New Testament. Moreover, it is exceedingly Jewish, in that it echoes the language of the prophets and the Old Testament book of Proverbs. Finally, it consists solely of advice on how Jewish, Jesus' Jewish followers ought and ought not to live, a seeming manual for Christian conduct. James takes a hard line, for instance, on the matter of suffering and adversity. When temptations enter your life, says James, don't resent them as intruders, but welcome them as friends. Realize that they come to test your faith and produce in you a quality of endurance. Such troubles will enable you to become men of mature character, men of integrity, with no weak spots. The disciple of Christ should not desire wealth so that God can raise him to true riches, while the man who is rich here will wither away like the summer flowers, James warns. Disciples should also learn to distinguish between trials and temptation. Trials are sent by God to strengthen us, whereas a man's temptation is due to the pull of his own inward desires which greatly attract him. Don't merely hear the message, but put put it into practice, says James. If anyone appears to be religious, but cannot control his tongue, he deceives himself, and we may be sure that his religion is useless. The tongue is like the rudder on a ship. Though it is a very small device, it can move the whole vessel. So the tongue, by what it does, can person a whole body, set the whole life ablaze, and feed the fires of hell. Religion that is pure and genuine in the sight of God the Father will show itself by such things as visiting orphans and widows in their distress and keeping oneself uncontaminated by the world. Neither should Jesus' disciples defer to mere wealth. The poor man in rags should be shown just as much consideration and respect as the rich man with fine jewelry and costly clothes. Have they not noticed, James asks, that God chooses poor men, not rich, to carry his message? It's also important that Christians not be given to making great plans because God at any moment could call them to their deaths. They should be patient and honest, sharing their joys and concerns with other believers and above all helping their brothers to keep faith, for when they do so this will cover a multitude of sins. James is certain that jealousy and conflict will arise among Christians. The question is, what should they do about these rivalries? What do you suppose such feuds come from? Can't you see that they arise from conflicting desires for pleasure from within yourselves? The answer, come close to God and he will come close to you. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Christians have periodically argued over whether whether James' letter should be included in the New Testament at all. For one thing, it is much shorter than most of Paul's letters, other than the purely pastoral ones to Philemon, Timothy, and Titus. For another, James was not of the original twelve. And again, did James the Just actually write it, or was it another James, or did someone write it on his behalf? More important, however, as Martin Luther would argue in the 16th century, James's letter appears to be written in contradiction of Paul's teaching on faith. It raises the question: which matters most—the depth of our faith, or how loyally we behave, we, behave or we believe, or what do what we do as the result of what we believe are works? Halfway through his letter, James discredits the validity of faith, if it is not accompanied by works. He asks, So you believe there is one God? That's fine. So do all the devils in hell, and shudder in terror. For my dear, short-sighted man can't see far enough to realize that faith without right actions is dead and useless. Since this seems a clear contradiction of Paul's emphasis on faith, many have proposed that James wrote his letter to contradict Paul. However, if it was written earlier, say in the 40s, this would place it before Paul's ministry, so it could hardly have been written to contradict Paul. This became a major issue among some Christians when Luther, stoutly arguing that faith was ultimately what mattered, attacked James' letter as an epistle of straw and regarded its inclusion in the New Testament as a mistake. The British evangelical theologian Donald Guthrie, in his New Testament introduction, argues that the epistle represents the thinking of many of Jesus' followers at a time the faith was being established. It is not at all clear that James wrote to correct Paul, he observes. Perhaps Paul wrote to correct James. We don't really know who wrote first. Some however, like the 20th century scholar C.S. Lewis, concluded that the argument of faith faith versus works was flawed, since one would not go far without the other. It is like trying to decide which blade of a pair of scissors is the more important. More recently, some, some theologians, such as New York Evangelical Spiros Zahaeus and the Epistle of James and the Life of Faith, have come to see Paul and James not as face-to-face in dispute with one another, but as back-to-back defending the same cause of Christ against different opponents. James against backsiders who conduct, whose conduct belied their professed faith, Paul against legalists, who saw conforming to the Jewish law as that which would save their souls. Any one demonstrated himself proof against both errors, it was James himself. In his heroically defiant death, he left an example that all Christians uh, through all ages would admire. Paul, as was his practice, first sought out the synagogue, only to discover there wasn't one. Meaning that in all Philippi, there was not even the requisite ten male Jews to form a congregation. However, he was told, a few devout women, some Jewish-born and some converts to Judaism, met on the Sabbath beside a little stream about a mile from the town to worship God. Read the scriptures and sing. Paul and his companions joined them and told, Jesus, told them of Jesus the Messiah, his death, his resurrection, and the grace he conferred upon those who were baptized and believed in him. The women's enthusiasm seems to have been instant, deep, and durable. Philippi became the strongest and most problem-free of Paul's churches, backing him with words, deeds, and money. The Philippian church had one other idiosyncrasy: it began and remained, in Paul's time, a church mostly of women. In particular, uh, one in particular became a powerful supporter. Her real name is unknown. Luke records it as Lydia, which says the historian F. F. Bruce simply means a woman from Lydia she came however from Thyatira a center over on the Asia side where the people for centuries had extracted from the mollusks found along the shore porphyra a purple dye that would not fade Lydia had moved to Philippi and set up a business importing the dye and selling it in Macedonia at Thyatira where there was a strong Jewish community she had become a god-fearer a convert to Judaism hearing Paul's message she was baptized, along with her whole household, which would include not only kinfolk, but slaves and freedmen. She gave her home over to Paul and his companions. There were, But there were other women in, active in the Philippian church on whom Paul relied. Two in particular, Jodia and Syntech, are singled out in a letter Paul wrote to the Philippians about ten years later, after the, these two quarreled. They worked hard for me in the gospel, he writes and exhorts the rest of the community to help them resolve their differences. But he also admonishes the two, with advice that would be cited to resolve the congregational and marital quarrels of Christians down through the ages. Live together in harmony. Live together in love, as though you had only one mind and one spirit between you. Never act for motives of rivalry or personal vanity, but in humility think more of each other than you do of yourselves. None of you should think only of his own affairs, but consider other people's interests also. It was good advice, observes Jerome Murphy O'Connor, but Paul himself didn't always take it, as his fulminations against his own rivals would amply demonstrate. Many historians note another, but more positive, inconsistency. Paul had ambiguous attitude toward women. On the other hand, he was a product of um, of the ancient synagogue, let women be silent in the church, he decrees. They are not allowed to, they are not to be allowed to speak. They must submit to this regulation as the law itself instructs. If they have questions to ask, they must ask their husbands at home, for there is something improper about women speaking in church. On the other hand, he conferred major responsibilities on women, not only at Philippi, but at Corinth, Ephesus, and elsewhere. And whatever his prejudices, women obviously admired, served, and trusted him. Perhaps they had heard his assertion, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are one in Christ Jesus. By the 21st century, those words would become a cliché. In the 1st century, they bespoke a revolution, and they were matched in Christian practice. The use of baptism as the central rite, says the historian Alan F. Siegel, in Paul the Convert, the Apostolate and Apostasy of Saul the Pharisee, made women full partners with men in Christian communities. Though women might actually have retained an inferior place in society, and those slaves, out of necessity, must have been returned to their masters, Paul felt that the distinctions between Jew and Gentile, which were based on ritual status, could be erased by new rituals of unity. Paul's appeal to women did not escape the attention of their husbands, notes F. F. Bruce in the book Paul, Apostle of the Free Spirit. At Thessalonica, he recruited into Christianity the wives of some of the foremost citizens. Gentle husbands did not object to their wives flirting with Judaism. It was becoming trendy, but they would look quite differently on their wives' association with the very odd collection of enthusiasts who, as it seemed to them, were hypnotized by these strangers who had come to their city from goodness knows where and who they might not be they might be sure meant no good. It was their wealth that they were after, if not something more discreditable still. Paul's ministry in Philippi lasted, by some estimates, about a year. It came to an end abruptly and violently. Paul and his company one day found themselves followed by a slave girl who incessantly shrieked out, These men are servants of the Most High God, and they are telling you the way of salvation. The girl was regarded locally as possessed, but by a peculiar demon which enabled her, said her owners, to forecast the future. They offered her service at a price. To Paul, she was simply a nuisance. The endorsement of a reputed lunatic did little for his credibility. And besides, she made so much noise, people couldn't hear what he was saying. Finally exasperated, he turned on her fiercely, directing his voice not at the girl, but at the demon within her. I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. Instantly, the intruder left her. Though Paul's attentions had undoubtedly cured the girl, the owners were far from grateful. By being recognizably rid of her demon... She had also been deprived of her supposed gift of prophecy, and everybody knew it. Paul had cost them a major asset. They pressed through the crowd, seized Paul and Silas, and dragged them to the town square, denouncing them as troublemakers, property-destroying Jews. They call, then they called on magistrates to punish the two for trying to convert Roman citizens. Such proselytizing, however, though officially discouraged, was not technically against the law. The magistrates arrived in state array, preceded by their lictors in emulation of the consuls at Rome. The lictors bore before them the fasces, rods bundled around axes, symbolizing the power of the Roman state to enforce laws and punish offenders. With neither a trial nor, for that matter, even the clear infraction of the law, the magistrates disregarded the protests of Paul and Silas and ordered them stripped and beaten with rods. A sentence sentence the lictors carried out there and then, the crowd, which didn't like Jews, cheered them on, with Luke reports. Bruised and bloodied, the pair was then hauled off to the local jail, where their legs were clamped into stocks. As the night approached, they began to cheer themselves by singing hymns and praying aloud. The historian Giuseppe Ricotti, in his book Paul the Apostle, imagines the hoarse voices, the cursing and swearing of the other prisoners. Near midnight, Luke reports, there was suddenly a deafening rumble. The building began to shake the bars jangled free in the windows, the doors swung open, the fetters on their wrists and legs fell loose. The horrified jailer rushed to the scene, saw the open doors, and gave up all hope. If the prisoners were gone, he knew his life was as good as lost. Perhaps he had even heard that King Agrippa, down down in Judea, had put sixteen jail guards to death when another of these so-called Christians, a man named Peter, had similarly dumbfounding, circumstances escaped jail in jerusalem the jailer drew a sword and prepared to fall on it better death this way than under torture then he heard the voice shouting at him it was a prisoner paul why had paul not fled what was going on stop paul shouted don't do that we're all here the jailer was thunderstruck he called for lights, to be brought forward and entered what was left of the jail it was true paul and silas were standing right there He began trembling who were these people he led them outside then it dawned on him just as the poor wretched slave girl had said these men were in fact and indeed servants of the most high god he led them from the jailhouse and fell at their feet sirs he said still trembling what must i do to be saved their answer was immediate believe in the lord jesus christ he took them into his house washed their wounds fed them and his whole household was baptized He would be their last convert in Philippi, and this one was male. But the story wasn't quite over. Constables arrived from the magistrates and ordered the two released. Not just yet, replied Paul. There was a little matter that remained to be resolved. They had been punished with no hearing, no evidence, no trial, and no law. The magistrates might like to know that both he and Silas were Roman citizens. Consternation no doubt registered on the faces of the constables, Paul ostensible, Paul's ostensible offenses were nothing compared to the charges that, they, that now faced the magistrates. Roman law was very specific and very strict on this point. You don't convict a citizen without a trial. A hundred years before, the great jurist Cicero had said, If a Roman citizen is bound, it is a misdeed. If he is struck, it is a crime. If he is killed, it is almost parricide, murder of a kinsman. Backing up Cicero was legislation that was half a millennia old. The Lex Valeria of 509 BC, says Ricciotti, prohibited striking a citizen without a previous and explicit popular decision. The Lex Portia of 248 BC prohibited scourging a citizen for any reason whatsoever. The magistrates knew this. Worse still, they knew that Paul knew it. They also knew that in similar cases, whole cities had been penalized for the actions of a single magistrate. What could they do to right this dreadful wrong? They could apologize, said Paul. So they did, profusely, but they had one more request of him. Would he and his party please get out of town? The people were angry. Controlling them would be difficult. Paul agreed, bared farewell to Lydia, and headed west with Timothy and Silas on the Via Ignatia, leaving Luke behind. But a church had been planted in Philippi that would be a joy to him for the rest of his life. Author Unknown, the Mysterious Letter to the Hebrews. Did this early and extraordinary insight into the identity of Jesus come from Paul's scholarly helper, Apollos? As Paul worked tirelessly during the decade of the the 50s to establish Christian missions in Asia Minor, Macedonia, and Greece, he suddenly acquired a strong, loyal, scholarly, persuasive, and rather mysterious Jewish helper. About ten years later, another another mystery developed. A letter with an extraordinary insight into the identity of Jesus was written by an unknown Jew, probably from Rome. What is not known though the question has been provoked debate for centuries is whether Paul's mystery helper wrote the, wrote the mystery, the mystery letter. The man named the man was named Apollonius, more familiarly Apollo, a product of the huge Jewish community in Alexandria. He appeared in the synagogue at Ephesus, speaking inform, informatively of the teachings of Christ and sufficiently knowledgeable of the scriptures to handily refute arguments hurled at him by opponents. Two of his listeners were Paul's assistants, the tent makers Priscilla and Aquila, who recruited him to Paul's work. In this cause, Apollos was sent across the Aegean to Corinth, a city that was a constant source of problems for Paul, and he gained such success there that Paul, in subsequent letter, mentions Apollos and is developing the kind of personal following that Paul sought to discourage. Christians should not consider themselves, Paul wrote, as disciples of Paul, or of Peter, or of Apollos. They should all regard themselves disciples of Christ, because it was Christ, not one of his disciples, who was crucified for them. Christ gives each Christian a particular job to do. He, Paul, planted the seed. Apollos watered it. God made it grow. Apollos' work, in other words, was considered as furthering Paul's. Apollos vanished from the scriptural records at this point. Church tradition takes him from Greece to Rome, and it was there, about ten years later, that the strange letter was probably written. It was addressed to Jewish followers of Jesus, probably in Palestine, who were being tempted away from the faith. It is known as to history as the epistle to the Hebrews. The theologian Tertullian, writing in the late 2nd century, ascribed Hebrews to Barnabas. Martin Luther, writing in the 16th, concluded that Apollos wrote it. The 19th century's theologian Adolf von Harnack attributed it to Priscilla, and the 20th century British historian F.F. Bruce goes along with Luther and favors Apollos as author. Bruce puts the letter's date at AD 63. During the 2nd and 3rd centuries, the Christians at Alexandria came to believe it was written by Paul, though his name isn't on it or in it, and it was accepted into the New Testament as a Pauline letter. Nearly all later historians, however, consider this impossible. Whether the style nor the Neither the style nor the contents is found anywhere in Paul, and though its teaching is compatible with Paul's, it is not the same and introduces ideas that Paul nowhere mentions. On one thing, however, we all seem agreed. Since it assumes that the routine rituals of the animal sacrifices were continuing as they had for centuries at the temple in Jerusalem, Hebrews must have been written before AD seventy. This matters. Its portrayal of Christ is that, uh, that of a being who, while fully man, was also something far beyond the merely human. Paul, too, portrayed such a being, though in a different way. This meant that the earliest theories answering the question, who was this man, are depicting something for which no previous human experience had provided adequate language. Christ's divinity, that is, is not a a later Christian doctrine, but the earliest one. In the epistle to the Hebrews, Christ is the Son. Through the Son, God made the world. By going through the death going through death, the Son destroyed the power of death and made it possible for mankind to be absolved of all the sin that besets them. The book of Genesis and the hundred and tenth psalm speak of a figure greater than Abraham, a man both king and high priest, named Melchizedek. Christ was greater than the angels and greater too than Melchizedek says the letter, though of the same priestly order. Christ's sacrifice was not of bulls and goats but of his own blood. thus the new covenant would replace the old, whose animal sacrifices are weak, out of date, and will be superseded. Such a prophecy in the ears of any devout Jew, committed as nearly all were to the eternal rites of the temple, would be understandably outrageous, yet, a few years later, with sword, fire, and slaughter, it would find grim and ghastly fulfillment. Something else had been accomplished by it that they could not realize at this time. Though they were already Christians at Rome, how they got there nobody knows, the first formal Christian mission had been established beyond the Aegean, on the continent called Europe. For the Christians, Philippi would provide a gateway to Europe, just as Europe, 1400 years later, would provide the gateway to the world. Things would not work out nearly so well at their next destination, however. It was Macedonia's capital and largest city, Thessalonica, Founded by Cassander, one of Alexander the Great's generals, in 315 B.C., and named for Cal- Cassander's wife, Thessalonica, who was Alexander's half sister, construction of the Via Ignatia, coupled with the fact that its harbor was the best port on the Macedonian coast, gave it a thriving economy. But by Paul's day, it was not a happy place. Murphy O'Connor portrays it as a run by dominant business, as run by do- a dominant business and bureaucratic elite closely tied to rome those saw to it that the working people did not share its prosperity to make a bare living they had to work 12 hours a day seven days a week moreover such solace as they were able to derive from their religion had like everything else been usurped by the wealthy or so the story went the god cabrius had been their protector but for reasons unexplained Thessalonica's gentry took a fancy to Cabirus and incorporated him into the state religion as a god for the upper class. So now even spiritual sustenance was denied them. Thessalonica's manifold business opportunities had attracted a large Jewish population, and it was the synagogue congregation that Paul and Silas first made their overtures. For three successive Sabbaths they were heard gladly, but then critics gathered, and the controversial nature of their message got them expelled. Even so, a number of wealthy women and a prominent Jew named Jason continued loyal to them. While they turned their attention to the Gentiles, in particular to the hard-pressed working population, Paul got a job as a tent maker, putting in the usual 12-hour day. To the poor, the message of a Messiah with no material possessions whatsoever, who regarded the poor as favored by God, who said it was the wealthy who had to tremble at the divine judgment, came with special meaning. The little congregation soon became a large congregation, growing steadily, this success did not please the synagogue leaders. They went to the marketplace, organized a gang of bully boys, and set out to drag Paul and company before the magistrates. Failing, failing to find them, they grabbed Jason and some of the other local leaders instead. These, they said, are the people who are turning the world upside down. F.F. F. Bruce makes a point. This description of the early Christian community, that they were upsetting the world, has provided a subject for countless sermons. Few of the preachers, however, realized how realized how dangerous uh, was this charge at the time. Jewish resistance to Rome was growing steadily in Judea and Galilee, and involving some Jews throughout the diaspora as well. The authorities would take this turning the world upside down, as evidence these were Jewish conspirators against Rome, being supported by, the, by a local man, Jason. However, they decided on a prudent course. They told Jason, Get these men out of town, and the charges will be dropped. Paul had no option but to concur. But he left in misery. His poor converts would now face the jeering and perhaps violence of Thessalonica. Bruce reconstructs that they would be saying, "A fine lot these Jewish propagandists are. They come here and entice you to leave the synagogue and follow them. But the moment trouble arises, off they go and leave their dupes to face the music. Cowardice was something of which Paul had never before been accused. But if he remained, then he his companions, Jason, and his converts, would all be jailed. So he departed, under cover of darkness. It was humiliating. His plan, some say, had been to keep moving west across Macedonia to the Adriatic terminus of the Via Ignatia at Derhasium, then to cross the Adriatic to Italy and Rome. But the hostility followed so close now on his heels, avoided this plan, and instead, the trio moved south to Borea. A quiet little place place bypassed by the march of progress since it lay about 30 miles off the via ignatia there the synagogue congregation again welcomed the visitors and listened intently to them however when the inevitable delegation arrived from thessalonica warning against these interlopers paul again had to leave the town in a hurry his new conference at borea advising him that because all the roads would be dangerous to him the party should split up this made sense It was Paul they were after, so Silas should remain at Borea to foster the work there. Timothy, poor, shy, delicate Timothy, should return to the lion's den at Thessalonica and see what had happened. Had any of the Thessalonians remained faithful? Or when the retribution of the city's elites came down on them, had they all abandoned the faith? The two could follow Paul later. Meanwhile, he would continue south. Not too far ahead lay a city that positively thrived on theological and philosophical controversy, relished it, and indulged in it day in and day out as as an irresistible sport. All three would be safer there than anywhere. That city was, of course, Athens. The name alone conveyed a whole catalogue of values, social, political, cultural, philosophical, and theological, everything that was meant by the word Hellenism, which Paul, as a well-instructed Jew of the Diaspora, had been trained from his childhood to both understand and resist. The armies of the great Alexander had burst out of Macedonia in the 4th century BC and had conquered the known world and much of the hitherto unknown. But those were mere military victories. The real conquest came behind them in form of trade, books, art, music, drama, lifestyles, and above all, language. To get anywhere in the Hellenistic world, you must be bilingual, speaking your native tongue along with a peculiar Greek uh, called coin the common greek spoken at athens by the first century ad however the glory of athens lay about 400 years behind frozen in time by the magnificent memorials the past had bequeathed to the present chief among them the parthenon the temple dedicated to athena which presided over the city from the top of the acropolis so that as the historian paul meyer observed in his book the fullness in the fullness of time it was difficult to decide even twenty centuries after Paul, which view was the most magnificent—that of the Apocalypse seen from the city below, or that of the city below seen from the Acropolis? Acropolis? Alexander's father had already conquered Athens too, of course, along with everything else. But he was sensible enough to leave it an independent city. The Romans lived at peace until the city. The Romans lived at peace with the city until the first century B.C. when Athens rose in an abortive revolt. The Romans stormed the palace and took it back in 86 BC, but soon restored the city's freedom. Now Athens was conquering Rome, as was its habit. Greek plays translated into Latin were all the rage in Roman society, as were Greek attitudes and sexual proclivities, much to the dismay of those who remembered, both accurately and nostalgically, the high morality of the old Roman Republic before Caesar Augustus had converted it into an empire. Paul walked through the teeming streets shuddering, the severe monotheism of his Jewish heritage, the sure knowledge that there could be only one God and one alone, deeply offended by nearly everything he saw. He had known paganism at Tarsus, of course, but on nothing like this scale. Here there were all manner of gods, hundreds of them, of every conceivable shape and identity. The place seemed a citadel of idolatry. He went first, as usual, to the synagogue, where, to his astonishment, the ocean of paganism around them apparently didn't alarm the Athenian Jews. of course were accustomed to it from there he moved unerringly to the agora the marketplace where the athenians traded not only goods but also in ideas the agora was in fact a kind of forum for the discussion of everything and anything and paul had a great deal to discuss unfortunately the reception was not encouraging when he spoke of god people no doubt wondered which god when he spoke of the law people would ask which law when he spoke of sin, the term uh, would have been at least comp- comprehensible, since the Greeks fully understood moral failure. But the mention of salvation would have been devoid of any sense. He could not cite the scriptures, the prophets, the patriarchs, because all of these were meaningless. Moreover, the people were unkind, haughty, snobbish. What is this bird brain trying to say? said some of the Stoic and Epicurean philosophers who frequented the Agora. He seems, replied others, to be trying to proclaim some more gods to us, and foreign ones at that. True, such problems were hardly new to Paul. While his hearers in the past had been mostly Jews or converts to Judaism, he had also brought Christ to pagans, who had no knowledge of either the law or the scriptures. So, whatever their skepticism, Paul managed, at least, to pique the interest of the Agora crowd. May me know what this new teaching of yours really is, said one. You talk of matters which sound strange to our ears and we should like to know what they mean. Would he perhaps address their council? It was named for the site on which they met, the Areopagus, or Mars Hill, just northwest of the Acropolis, in the very shadow of the Parthenon itself. Paul readily agreed. Here surely was a heaven-sent opportunity. He could present the Christian case to the elect intellectual elite of the world's most intellectual city. Certainly, he would be regarded more as a curiosity than as a source of illumination, because Athens was notoriously fascinated by novelty, worse yet he must make sense to an audience upon whom most of the terminology essential to his message would be lost. Still, it was an opportunity. Paul began his address to the threshold Paul began his address to the assembled crowd diplomatically. Athens he said was certainly a religious city. that was a compliment, not sarcasm. It would please his listeners. There were temples and altars to gods everywhere. But one in particular, he had noted, it was dedicated to the unknown God. He was there today to talk about the unknown God. There was a murmur of interest. He had them. They were listening. He was there to speak, not of a God, but of the God, he said, the God who made the world and everything in it, the God who was Lord of heaven and earth, the God who could not possibly live in a temple or be somehow waited on by human hands as though he needed things that his creatures could provide them. He being the one, who, the one who had given breath itself to men and every other breathing creature. From one ancestor, he had created every human being. This was the God who had determined where each creature would live and how long, But in the hope that during his lifetime, each might search for God, feel him, and find him. <laughs> Cities Without Street Names Streets without addresses. Finding anyone's house in Paul's day could be a bewildering job. In the seemingly constant travel of first century Christians between cities and within them, some of the difficulties of finding places and people then may escape many modern readers. Street names in ancient t- cities were often merely matter of local usage. There was no such thing as an official or legal name, and the same street might have several different ones. Streets simply grew without surveys, without property lines, and without house numbers. Worst of all, they did not necessarily run in straight lines or meet at right angles. The following dialogue is taken from The Brothers by playwright Terence, a former slave who adapted Greek comedies for Roman, Latin-speaking audiences. The scene is at Athens, early early in the 2nd century BC. 200 years later, city life was little changed, making the play a big hit with Roman audiences. The translation is by John Sargent. me the place then. Do you know the colonnade by the meat market down the way? Of course I do. Go that way straight up the street. When you get there the slope is right there in front of you. Down it you go. At the end there's a chapel on this side. Just by the side of it there's an alley. Which? The one where the great wild fig tree is. I know it. Take that way. That's a blind alley. So it is by Jove. Tut tut. You must think me a fool. I made a mistake. Come back to the colonnade. Yes, yes. There's a much nearer way and much less chance of missing it. Do you know the Crattness' house, the millionaire man there? Yes. When you are past it, turn to your left, go straight along the street, and when you come to the temple of Diana, turn to the right. Before you come to the town gate, close by the pool, there's a baker's shop and opposite is a workshop. That's where he is.